Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to Voices from the Real World. Profile Theater is a theater company located in Portland, Oregon. Profile Theater centers the season around a season-long featured writer. Our best artists help us see. And at Profile, each year, we use a different writer's unique perspective as a lens that helps us see our shared world in new and surprising ways. Community Profile is an affinity space built around the structure of a free writing workshop. Participants in Community Profile meet, write, support, share, and bear witness to other people who may have walked a mile in their shoes. In Community Profile, we feature writers who have won awards and had numerous books published, as well as writers who are making their first foray into expressing themselves on paper. The result is writing that is singularly personal, provocative, powerful, moving, funny, tragic, beautiful, and that encapsulates the entirety of the human experience. What this podcast does is give those writers, those creators, a chance to share their life stories and their writing in a public forum so that we can celebrate and appreciate victories that have been won and challenges that have been overcome by people whose lives you may recognize or be experiencing for the very first time. Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to Voices from the Real World, real people telling their real stories. Uh, I am here today with Mayor Biddle. Good afternoon, Mayor. Hey, Bobby. How is life in the fast lane? It is going pretty well. Oh, good. Good. I'm so glad to hear it. Well, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Let's see. You're born and raised. You were uh, where, where at? I'm 57 years old. I was born in the northwest corner of Iowa, um, and my family moved to Phoenix, Arizona, when I was four. So I was essentially raised in Arizona. Went to um, ASU, graduated in accounting, of all things. Um, got a job in the Big Eight in the tax department. Moved to LA, um, and then a big shift happened in my life when I was 24. I, I got sober. Um, and that changed a lot of things for me. I moved back to Phoenix for several years um, and then wound up in San Diego, um, met my husband and worked in accounting um, again um, on a smaller scale. And then my, my folks were still in Phoenix. And so we we had two kids. We moved the family back to Phoenix to be closer to my parents. And then in 2011, we moved to Portland. Uh, how'd you choose the Rose City? We had been here. Brad had worked for Intel for 14 mm. years um, down um, in Arizona. And uh, we had been up here for a month uh, during the mid 2000s and loved it loved it so much and so when we decided okay i think we're done in phoenix let's where do we want to go i immediately said portland um and here we are big culture difference yeah significant yes yeah it just so happens that i was in the phoenix area uh earlier in the fall doing a, a theater gig nice you know um one thing was, you know, we were like the cast was living in Scottsdale. We were at ASU. It was where the the shows performed. And, you know, between like Tempe and Phoenix and and uh, Scottsdale, it's a lot of driving. It, a tremendous amount of driving, and it's better now than it was when when I was making that drive to ASU. Uh, I mean, at least there's more freeways. So it's and uh, the light rail now too. Mm -hmm. So I will say, 
the sky in Arizona is amazing. It is. It's true. The sense of horizon from the sky right. is is really spectacular. Yeah, it was. It was probably like my um, number one impression that, that I came with. I came away with. Nice. You know. So um, between your travels, uh, Iowa, Phoenix, L.A., Phoenix, uh, Portland, have you been writing the whole time? You know, I actually didn't start writing until my kids were. Um, I don't know, probably four and two. Um, I've, uh, it's something that has been part of my, my, uh, internal life for a long time, like, you know, journaling and so forth. Um, but I was at a coffee shop actually in, uh, Scottsdale and I heard someone ask the barista a question. He said, do you know where the men's warehouse is? And the barista said, dude, do you even know you're in Scottsdale? And it was, I was so hooked. Like I couldn't unhear the dialogue and I couldn't unhear, like this whole thing exploded for me. And I started writing. So how did that conversation end? (laughs) It ended with the first uh, gentleman being baffled by the barista's answer. And then the barista just laughing and shaking his head and saying, no, man, I don't, I don't know where the men's warehouse is. (laughs) It was funny. Um. Uh, so you're in Portland. How did you uh, hear about Community Profile? I um, I, I was really intrigued with uh, Profile Theater's premise, you know, but taking on a particular sure. uh, playwright and producing their work or two playwrights and producing their work over the course of a season, you know, popular works, but also lesser known material. Mm-hmm. And that was really interesting to me. And so I, I became a member and have supported the theater um, as a member over the years and, and just watched as more and more programs have blossomed uh, within the community. That's great news to hear on this podcast. Awesome. So how long have you been a member with Profile? I want to say, gosh, maybe four years. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Great. Um, uh, so do you think writing is something you're going to continue to work on to develop? Yeah. You know, I, I, the first sort of story that I wrote, I wrote for the stage um, and it was called throwing snowballs at the moon. And, um, and I had that produced and I, I really got the theater bug. I didn't grow up in theater as a kid, um, but I really got it. And I continued to write, um, I'm partial to shorter works. Um, so Snowballs is a one act and I wrote a companion one act to go with it and they were mounted together. And then I started doing a lot of 10 minute plays, which are super fun for me. Um, and I, I wanted to try my hand at prose. And so I started doing some parallel writing, um, and theater's tough. It's, um, it's it's consuming and and oftentimes self produced um, and to that end I thought well we're relocating and the structure of theater in Portland is just different than the structure of theater in in Arizona and um, and so when we got up here I wasn't finding access to actors or mm. um, smaller theaters that had maybe writing groups kind of attached to them like I had come to know in Arizona. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe this is the time for me to switch. And so I started moving into the space of creative nonfiction and 
and flash fiction. Fantastic. Um, and you have some pieces that you want to share with us today? I do. Yeah. I brought one. Um, you know, I have to stop asking that like a question as if I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do that so many times. It drives me nuts. I don't know why I do that. You know, you know. So, you have, so what have you brought to read for us today? <laughs> Um, I brought two pieces. I have um, the first one is um, actually the very first piece I ever published, nonfiction piece. Um, it's called Hair Ties, and uh, and the second piece is um, is fiction. Interestingly, though, it was written as a monologue originally and was performed as a monologue in the Dramatist Guild Friday Night Footlights series down in Scottsdale. But I've reworked it as a piece of prose. Got you. Awesome. Uh, so hair ties. Um, why don't you read it first and then let's talk a little bit about it. Okay. Well, let's see how I do. This piece is called hair ties. Don't touch him. The ER doctor barked at me. You can't touch him because you conduct current. We can't tell exactly what his heart is doing. My hair, can he hold my hair? I took out my hair tie and wrapped my three-year-old son's frightened little paw around a thick bunch. My hair was long that year. I had worn it short most of my adult life. I don't particularly like long hair. Handfuls to wash, tangles to blow out, layers and layers to straighten, repeat. I don't recall making a decision to grow it long. I must have skipped a few appointments, and then soon enough it was past my shoulders. The perfect length to braid or pile up or as it turned out, to hold. This kid's not crashing on me. Let's get this done, people. The emergency room doctor ordered adenosine and explained that it would reset my son's heart. Take it from 266 beats per minute back down to a normal 100. He did not explain how that would happen. My husband's frightened but focused eyes caught mine across the gurney. I lowered my gaze to my son's face and forced what I hoped was a calm smile. It's okay, sweetie. Hold mommy's hair. More people poured in and out of the room in a constant stream, voices blending together. What? No, no cardiac history. No, no allergies. He had a cold last week. I lost track of who said what and focused on not touching our boy. Ready? Do it. The nurse pushed the adenosine into our son's IV, followed by the saline to carry it to his heart. Flatline. My baby held my hair. He didn't blink. He didn't breathe. I remember his eyes opened wide. The pupils exploded with blackness. We stared into the bottom of each other, and in that moment, something new grew in me, organ-shifting and permanent. I had never felt anything like that before, a visceral and brutal love wanting to thrust my hand inside his chest and squeeze, start beating, fucking start. But my hand could only tremble above his forehead, my long hair, the only umbilical cord between us. No one moved. And then, beep, beep, beep. The doctor called out, normal sinus rhythm. A collective exhale swept the room. The longest four and a half seconds of my life. I kissed my baby's forehead and squeezed his little hands still knotted in my hair. I told him he could let go. He said no. My son went on to have five more tachycardic episodes like this one before he was accurately diagnosed with a rare form of a rare heart defect called Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. 
Six months after he flatlined, our insurance approved the ablation procedure, and we flew to Los Angeles, where his heart was repaired. That night, we watched Shrek for the first time. Tears of laughter and relief streamed down my husband's face and mine. I don't remember making the decision, but it wasn't long after we returned home when I threw out my hair ties and cut my hair. Short hair suits me better, less maintenance. And though I hadn't planned it this way, my son didn't need it anymore. Woo! It got me again. <laughs> uh, when you, uh, when, it, when it gets to the flat line, like just that line, it's just like, oof. And, and then like, the, when he won't let go of the hair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man. Um, so you said that's nonfiction. No. Uh, can you talk about that? Yes. Um, my, um, my, my oldest child, um, Sophie, uh, is 19 months older than her younger son, her younger brother, Connor. And Connor is what is now defined as medical complexity. He has an unpredictable course of several diseases, syndromes, circumstances um, that are over time, um, increasingly challenging and at times acutely life-threatening. One of those was this heart defect, which is an isolated uh, piece of his biology, uh, whereas most of the other uh, complexities are are related if for no other reason than they're all happening in his body. So, wow. And, and yeah. that is like a complete story. Just this like page and a half <laughs> that you sent me, you know, it's like, and, uh, like it's so intense right in the middle. Um, I don't know what I was expecting, but <laughs> you know, um, he's still dealing with this stuff. Yeah. He, his heart is, um, his heart is, is still in good shape. Um, when we got to LA, they, the procedure took much longer than they had anticipated. And they called us up from the, um, from the OR and said that, um, they were having a hard time because the extra nerve, uh, was literally wrapped around the AV node, which is the heart's normal pacemaker. And they couldn't do the procedure the way they had hoped to do it. So they, they couldn't do it with one sustained burn. They had to take the catheter off and put it back on again and hope they were hitting the same spot. Um, and to do that, they had to keep throwing him into, um, fib, you know, AFib. And um, that was horrifying. Yeah. And I was, yeah, I'm grateful for some of the pediatricians we've had, um, in his life. Um, and, uh, and actually one of the pieces that I'm, uh, have, I'm in the process of drafting right now is about the particular pediatrician that we had at this time. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, we have been fortunate. Pediatric medicine is, I'm grateful for it and it's tough. There just aren't a lot of people who specialize, uh, and so you need to go where they are and you need to do what they tell you to do because you kind of don't have much choice. Yeah. yeah so, and, uh, uh, just the, 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 the thinking on your feet to even offer, can you hold my hair? Such a mom moment. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea why I even thought yeah, of it. Such a mom moment. Way to go. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Mayor Biddle and Voices from the Real World. 
I'm feeling jolly. Let's let the creativity and self-expression commence. Profile theater, yeah, they're here to present to you a free writing workshop for any LGBTQ plus and BIPOC individual. You could choose to sit with us in a room in the physical, or you could join through Zoom and do it virtual. Long as you're 18 through 30 years old, you'll have the opportunity to write, learn, and grow from some of the most prominent writers this world has known. Learn to get in your zone. And they'll teach you how to hone all your skills, all your talents, all your writing powers. An affinity space full of artists once a month for three hours. Making major changes across the nation. Just by using your imagination. And you might be thinking, where is the location? Well, it's where outside the frame is. In downtown Portland, up the stairs in the Union Station. You know the train station building with the big sign that says, go by train. Here's your chance to pull or express yourself in a major way. We're here to listen to anything that you gotta say. We want to hear your voice, use your words, and take them straight off the page. Even if you're thinking that you got no style. Even if you haven't wrote for a while. Come on down to Community Profile. And let your creativity flow and go wild. Then we are back with Voices from the Real World featuring Mayor Biddle. One other thing I would offer is that one of the things that's been really interesting about writing about my kids and and our family is whose story is it to tell and and respecting their privacy and their space and and where what do I do with the lens? How do I telescope the lens? You know, perspective is is big for me. And so Heritage, which I, I read is obviously a really tight, you know, uh, really tight lens and a close up. Um, other, other pieces, you know, I refer to my daughter as Blackberry jam. You know, I, I pull the lens out and I, I give them both reference and space and also, um, try to capture the feeling of powerlessness without actually telling that story. Um, sure. So that's, that's been an interesting aspect of, of trying to write about the family. Yeah. And it's also kind of like, uh, dependent on what you're planning on doing with the writing. Right. 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 And I didn't write about the kids until they were 18, until mm-hmm. they were both old enough, in my opinion, to be able to say, yeah, I'm OK with that. And they read anything that I write that's about them. They have veto rights, too, because I just I. Yes, it's my story, too. And I need to respect what they feel is private to them. That's awfully generous of you. A lot of writers. uh wouldn't or couldn't or do that, you know? Well, that's what fiction's for. Right. right. <laughs> Break it down for me. Um, last night, I Waved Goodbye is a uh, piece of fiction. I, I'm i a big fan of Mona Awad, who is not the first person to say this, but who says this often in her interviews, that fiction is really the only way you can ever tell the truth. And um, what I hoped to do in this story was capture the willingness that we as human beings are willing to go to, to belong. Mm-hmm. Um, last night I waved goodbye. The first time I heard Barry Manilow's weekend in new England was on a Friday night at Debbie Grant's house. And Scott Benson was asking me to dance my first boy girl party. And I was only invited because my mother and Debbie's mother were sisters. Debbie and Scott were popular I was not. 
I wasn't a target for bullying, but I also wasn't the first two or three rings of popularity. When I stepped toward the kitchen counter to put down my tab soda, I tripped and heard Snickers behind me. Scott smiled, took my hand, and took me into the den where the turntable was playing. He slid his long, thin arms around my waist and rested his clasped hands across the back of my hips. I felt something inside my stomach shift. My thighs tingled. I wondered if Scott felt the curve in my spine, if he could tell that my right hip was three-quarters of an inch higher than my left. I brought my arms up around his neck and was careful not to step on his feet. I felt his breath on my neck. He smelled like fresh laundry and McDonald's french fries. My eyes adjusted to the glow of the lava lamps around the room. Three of Scott's teammates huddled around one of those octagon-shaped game tables, ogling the layouts of Mr. Grant's Playboy magazines. Debbie and her best friend Carol clung to the boys, laughing too loudly and adjusting their Jordache jeans to draw attention to their butts. They were on pep squad, so the entire school got to see plenty of their butts. The whole scene made me wonder what great one-liner Sammy would have snorted under her breath. I looked away and hoped she was doing okay that night. Samantha and her family moved in next door a week before the start of second grade. She was petite, hyperactive, and carried a whiff of sour milk about her. She wasn't super weird or anything, but she was shy, and her odd bruises fueled gossip. Sammy became a target. I remember one day when she came to school with a chipped front tooth. Sammy said she and her cousins were playing a game, and she smacked her mouth on the bottom of the swimming pool. We made eye contact, and then she looked away. Sammy didn't have any cousins. I couldn't take it and piped up, Oh yeah, it sounded like you guys were having a great time. We were best friends after that. Scott pulled me close so our hips touched. I was sure he could feel the small hitch in my gait as we turned circles on the shag carpeting. Our family doctor found the scoliosis in my spine last year and recommended a back brace. I begged my parents to not make me wear it to school. They said I didn't have to wear it all the time, promised that the teachers would protect me from name-calling, and anyway, they said no one will even notice. Of course they noticed. I cried a lot, but Sammy, she was always with me. Last spring during lunch recess, one of Scott's teammates made fun of me out on the bleachers. Sammy jumped to her feet, marched up to where he was sitting, and punched him in the face. I'd rather have a limp than an ugly face, she yelled. Sammy knew a lot about hitting. Her grandfather drank too much. Sammy's father didn't drink because he didn't want his kid growing up with a drunk for a father. But her dad, he was mean, and sometimes Sammy got in the way. At first, her mother called to see if Sammy could sleep over, but eventually Sammy just started bringing her stuff over in the middle of the night. Even though I missed my friend that night, I also felt relieved that Sammy wasn't at the party. I loved Sammy like I imagine I would have loved a sister, and while this group would tolerate me for a few hours, I knew they wouldn't have shown the two of us any mercy. Anyway, I was pretty sure my dance partner had lost a bet, and that felt kind of shitty, but I was... In fact, slow dancing with Scott Benson. Even if I was a joke, he was holding me sweetly, pressing into me, and I prayed that Barry Manilow would sing for hours. Then, as if the universe were saying, sorry, kid, this one's got to end, Barry Manilow belted out his last lyric, and the song faded. 
Scott lifted his hand up to my cheek, brushed my hair off my shoulder, and nuzzled his face against my neck. My knees swayed. I remember that I giggled and started to squirm, but then he raised his mouth to my ear and whispered, I was confused. Did he like me? Like, like me? The song ended. Someone started the Fleetwood Mac Rumors album, but Scott and I continued to sway and turn in our own little world. Later that night, at the end of the driveway, Scott kissed me for the first time. Standing under the streetlight, waiting for my dad to pick me up, I pressed my fingers against my lips to contain my squeal. My first kiss, my first boyfriend. I felt different, like I belonged to him, to them. And right then I realized that everything would be different at school on Monday morning. I knew that I would wait for Scott at his locker and we would sneak a kiss when the bell rang for homeroom. Debbie and Carol would invite me to sit with them at lunch and they would share their lip gloss with me during PE class. Scott's teammates would nod approvingly in my direction when they passed me on the breezeway. And I realized, too, that when Sammy caught my eye in social studies on Monday, I knew I would look away. Whoa. Okay. 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 So this story is nonfiction. No, it's fiction. This is fiction. Yes. That's what I meant to say. Yes. This this story is fiction. Uh, It's so good. Um, That ending is so unexpected. Like, like for me, it, it was, it was such like, I like, uh, because you're, you're with her and, and the friendship and the loyalty and you feel for both of them and you, you, you know, and you feel like, you know, this whole thing where they've only got each other's backs. Yeah. Uh, and it feels like I, like it's a happy ending because so, so she, you know, uh, she, she got the boyfriend, Yeah, you know, that, that she didn't think she's going to get, um, and then just like, and it's not even like uh, a big splash. It's just like this really like almost like subtle nuanced change, and 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 how uh, matter of factly, yeah, she uh, admits that to herself. You know that hey, you know uh, this has been my step into the world, and not, now I don't need you anymore. Um, and kind of like the coldness of that is really unexpected, you know, for me, I, you know, I was just not expecting at all for that to be the direction that it changed. Well, um, well, first I'm glad. (laughs) Um, and uh, you know, these two characters, um, are very familiar to me. Um, I am, I am both of these characters, um, and have been both of these characters Hmm. in my life. Um, and, and the need to belong is so intense and biologic, you know, biologically driven for human beings that the first time I was Sammy, I was in the same seat that, that you're describing, like what just happened to me? And then when I was not Sammy, when I was the, the young lady in the story, our, our girl, our hero, um, I understood what happened. It, it, it was them, it, you know, I, I was picking tribe. I was picking my group. I was picking and I picked poorly, but I didn't know it at the time because that need was, was bigger than my ability to stand up on my own. Wow. 
Wow. Um, and what do you think it was that you felt like you, and this is, you know, you might not have it, like, what is it that, that you felt like you were missing that you needed to get from this other group that you couldn't get from the Sammy? A larger acceptance. A, um, you know, it's, it's, it was important for me um, to have my Sammy um, uh, when I was a kid and, and, and also, you know, most definitely into adulthood, um, early adulthood. Um, I think largely our twenties are a big decade of figuring this out, of figuring out like, oh, I'm going to ditch this one person or these two people for this larger group where I have m more acceptance, where I fit in, where where I'm being allowed to fit in. Um, but then the reality is that if we're lucky, we get to learn quickly that that there's a big price that goes with that kind of acceptance. It's not real. Um, yeah. And those lessons come soon for some people and later for, for others. And for some of us, it takes forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Same. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, it's funny, like the things that you think you're cool, that, uh, that are cool and that you have to have it, you know, when you're in, when you're in high school, when you're in your twenties, like, yeah. as you said, yeah. and then, you know, later on you're like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> what was that even about? Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, excellent stuff. Mara, you. you know, and I really love your um, um, uh, uh, emotional clarity and your insight into the human condition and your and your ability to convey all that with really like uh, clear, precise, simple prose. Oh, thank you. You know, um, I mean, uh, there is no like flash, you know, or, you know, any kind of like, um, you know, garish gesture. Like, but that last sentence of, of the second piece just has that impact, you know, and you just say, hey, can you hold on to my hair, you know, and uh, do I let my hair go? No. And that's it, <laughs> you know, and yeah. I was like, boom. So um, thank you. Yeah, you're uh, so welcome. <laughs> thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Same. Thank you. And that is it for this edition of Voices from the Real World. Real people tell their real stories. Thank you to Mayor Biddle for her honest and insightful and precise prose. Um, and of course, thank you to our, to our production team. Jamie M. Ray, line producer. Robert A. K. Gagno, sound engineer. Um, Sam Mallory, the recording engineer who, who recorded this at the Willamette Radio Workshop in Portland, Oregon which exist on the, on the traditional lands of Multnomah, Kaflamet, Clackamas, Tumwater, and Malala bands of the Chinook peoples, the Tualatin band of the Kalapuya peoples, and many other tribes who made their homes along the Columbia River. We acknowledge and honor the ancestors and survivors of this place and recognize that we are here because of the sacrifices forced upon them, and we honor their descendants who live on. And I am Bobby Bermea. Thank you for joining us for Voices from the Real World. To hear more podcasts, go to profiletheater.org slash onair, where you'll find other episodes of Voices from the Real World, as well as Satellite, Beyond the Page. If you have feedback or suggestions for me, I'm taking all comers. Write me at bobbyb at profiletheater.org. One love and peace out. <laughs>